This episode of Value Hive is brought to you by Tegas. If you enjoy listening to Value Hive, you'll love the Tegas product. Tegas has the world's largest collection of instantly available expert interviews on all the public and private companies that you care about. All you have to do is log in. So if you're tired of high cost and time consuming expert research calls, give Tegas a try and see for yourself why many of the most trusted and well-respected hedge funds, mutual funds, family offices, allocators, and VCs rely on Tegas to scale their expert research and to get the critical information they need faster than ever. You can sign up for a free trial at tegas.co forward slash value hive. That's tegas.co forward slash value hive. And as a personal anecdote, I use Tegas literally every single day. It's the first resource I use when I start researching uh, a new investment, and it's one of the last things I do uh, before I finish up rounding out my research, and I know you'll love it as much as I do. Before we dive into today's conversation, I want to talk to you about MIT Investment Management Company, also known as Matimco, the investment office of MIT. Each year, Matimco invests with a handful of new emerging managers who it believes can earn exceptional long-term returns in support of MIT's mission. In order to help the emerging manager community more broadly, they created EmergingManagers.org, a website for emerging manager stock pickers. For those looking to start a stock picking fund or those just looking to learn about how others have done it, I highly recommend this site. You'll find essays and interviews by successful emerging managers, service providers used by MIT's own fund managers, essays Matimco has written for emerging stock pickers, and more. Matimco also occasionally and opportunistically hires new members for their investment team. To view the job description, please visit matimco.org slash global dash investor. That's M-I-T-I-M-C-O dot O-R-G slash global dash investor. The Matimco team spends their time learning about great businesses and investments, working with exceptional investors around the world in order to support generations of MIT innovators. Okay, Alex Verge. This has been a long time awaited conversation, at least on my end, ever since I heard your podcast with um I think it was Shubham of uh of White Tundra. I believe you did a podcast with him or, or maybe Sohabe. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So I listened to that one and it was it was fantastic. And I'm like, man, um, I would love to pick I would I would I would love to pick your brain. And I got uh I got wind of you and the opportunity from and two of my buddies, uh, Josh Young and Harris Kupperman. And so, um, you know, just for disclosure purposes, for everybody listening, we, we, we do own shares in Journey. And so and we do have that, that, that long bias. But really what I want this conversation to be is um, just an overview of who you are, how you got to where you are, the journey, the struggles, um, the highs, the lows, and really why you're positioned or you think you're positioned to um, – you know, build this business and capitalize on what could be a, you know, a next leg higher in this longer term commodity bull cycle. So before we dive into what you're doing now, let's unpack what you've done before, how you got here. So who is Alex Verge and, 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 and how did you end up at Journey? Thanks very much for uh, doing this podcast, uh, Brandon. And thanks so much for, for having me on. I, 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 the amount of value that, people like you are bringing to what I do is, is, is tremendous in, in this business. And uh, I mean, obviously things are different for me because this isn't the way we used to do our marketing, but, uh, or even, even the way we used to tell people about ourselves, but uh, this is certainly the way of the future. So, I mean, I've been around 40 years now, so I've been kind of 
doing this for a long time uh, in terms of in terms of oil and gas um it's more than two-thirds of my life I've, I've spent in this in this business and i really love it uh after uh, working out here for a few summers, I, I grew up in, in Toronto or near Toronto and uh, went to university in Toronto and came out here in my summers. And after a few summers in here, I really developed a passion for the oil and gas industry. And I moved from Toronto to uh, Calgary in the early 80s to work for Gulf Canada Resources. Uh, after about seven and a half years in Gulf, where I was in kind of reservoir engineering and planning and then production engineering, uh, I wound up going to uh, Shell, and, and I went to Shell so that I could specialize in reservoir engineering, and that was that was the big thing for me. Uh, that was my my true passion, and it was in the late '80s at Shell when I was first exposed to buying and selling properties, uh, oil and gas properties, and kind of loved that and glommed onto that ever since. So uh, in 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 the late '80s at Shell, it was mostly um, selling properties but uh since then since the 90s early 90s at poco and bonavista and new vista now journey it's been mostly uh mostly buying so one of the things that i learned early on uh in in our industry is that um companies won't manage your career for you you have to do that so if you want to specialize in a field like i want to specialize in reservoir engineering and you want to get exposure to the courses and mentorship you needed you need to go do that. So that's why I left Gulf to go to Shell because they were really strong reservoir engineering wise. They had a really good training program. It's also why when I first came out here from Toronto, I didn't know much about oil and gas. I started the master's program in petroleum engineering here in Calgary on a part-time basis taking courses. And they were mostly oil and gas courses. And I was taking these courses in the evening and then using them during the day uh, at work. And another thing that I kind of learned early on is that the only time my career really started to take off is kind of when I gave up on it. Um, I mean, I always wanted to move into some sort of management role or some higher higher role when I was at Gulf or at Shell. But then after I went to Rising Resources and I was working as directly for a president uh, at a small company, um, the company got bought out in about nine months after I was there. So I spent kind of everyone at Shell used to joke that Alex spent two years looking for a job that lasted nine months and uh, <laughs> it got bought out by Gardner Resources in 1994 and then I decided at that time to go to Poco and work for someone who had been kind of my mentor he was telling me a lot about the business a lot about how things worked in the business how compensation worked in the business how people made money uh, he at one point told me he made more money in the stock market than he made at his job and I couldn't believe how this could even be possible. And, and so I started to get to know him really well. He was the VP of business development at Poco. And so I went there. Um, I, I, had, I, I built my relationship with him kind of. He was buying properties from Shell. And I was kind of saying, oh, yeah, that would be a really good thing to own. And then he would go buy it. And so we built this relationship and then I went over to work for him and I just decided, hey, you know, I'm just going to hitch my train to Ron's wagon, uh, my wagon to Ron's train and I'm just going to be happy wherever that takes me and I'm just going to try and be the best reservoir engineer that I can. I'm going to try and help Ron as much as I can. And that's kind of when things really opened up for me because after a couple of years of being at Poco and, and doing a number of transactions there, 
Ron Pelzer and Keith McPhail, and Keith was the president of Canadian Natural when he when he left that. As a, he took it sort of from the startup period with Al Markin and to a to a kind of an intermediate company, and then he left and he joined forces with Ron, and they recapped a smaller company called Bonavista Petroleum. And uh, so it wasn't uh, within a couple of months of Ron leaving um, Poco that I followed Ron over to uh, Bonavista. And then that was really the heyday of the, the kind of junior and intermediate companies. Uh, from 97 to 2003, we took Bonavista from about 3,000 BUEs a day to 35,000 BUEs a day. And then we spun out New Vista. And at the time, Keith asked me to run New Vista with his help. And so I went over to New Vista to be the president of that. And we took New Vista from about 3,000 barrels a day to 30,000 barrels a day as well. Same sort of thing as Bonavista, another one of these roll-up models. And then uh, we purchased, uh, we spent over $50 million on land sales, primarily in that greater Wapiti car uh, area. And we built the, the Montney position inside New Vista. And then we began transitioning New Vista from a roll-up model to a repeatable resource model. Um, after leaving New Vista, uh, I was uh, approached by Patrick Sampson, who had bought this company, uh, Thunder Energy Trust, changed the name to Sword, and hired a company to manage it, and wasn't too happy with it. And I wound up taking over Sword uh, in 2012 uh, with uh, PSP kind of as as our major backer. Uh, at the time, we decided to rename the company and give it a new look. Uh, we called the company Journey. I remember approaching the management team uh, at SORT at the time and saying, you know, I always thought that if I had another chance to do this again with another company, I'd love to call it Journey. And it's because I, with all of the people that were at New Vista, you know, the, the industry is so volatile. Mm -hmm. and, and I used to say, you know, um, as long as you do the right things and you continue to do the right things, you will reach your monetary destination at the end. But you make you make all a lot of your money in very short windows of opportunity in this business. And there's long periods in between where you're either struggling or just, you know, treading water. And then you get massive lifts in price. You you you, you do really well for a while and then you're you're back to normal. So in in my view, uh, I said the destination of making your money is easy to do if you do the right things, but you're not going to really, you're not going to love it unless you enjoy the journey along the way. And part of it was you need to love what you're doing. You spend so much time with the people you work with. You need to love it. And, you know, I guess uh, since COVID, um, I've learned how much I really do love it. And I, I you know, I, I would say that when, when they, when they take it away from you, that's when you really appreciate how, mm. how much you really love it. But we took journey public in 2014, kind of at the peak of the, uh, of, of the last, you know, oil boom market. And, uh, you know, the first five or six years we're in what I would call, uh, falling commodity price market where every year the prices got a little bit worse so it was a great time to take it public from raising money but it was kind of a disastrous time from a from a market perspective so yeah you know i like a lot of ceos in calgary i mean i'm pretty much all in in what i do i took 
most of the money out of Bonavista, plowed a lot of it into New Vista. And then I, I took my money from New Vista, plowed a lot of it in the journey. So by the time kind of 2014 hit and we did the IPO, I plowed about most of our life savings in, into journey. So, you know, then we got into the spring of 2020 and that was a really difficult time for us as a company. And, and, and we can talk about that if you want, but I mean, I, I spent a lot of, a lot of rough nights in, in 2020 as we got through it. And then, um, after we got through 2020, we, we got a buyout of our banks at the end. And, and, you know, I think we're, we're doing well. We've made a lot of the right moves since then, but, uh, mm -hmm. I, uh, I think 2020 was pretty rough. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, you can, you can look at the stock chart of, of, of journey and I can't even imagine how, how, how rough it was for someone that had, you know, like you said, most of your life savings into the stock. Um, but I do want to, and I definitely want to get to that because I think there's so much psychological and, just intestinal fortitude wisdom that is 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 inside those stories but there's clearly some sort of game plan some sort of playbook that you ran um you know when you first started whether it was then you know you went to Bonavista then you spun out went to New Vista so what was that what was that game plan what was what was what was the strategy that you guys were employing specifically yeah i think you know i i'm going to call it i'm going to call it a a, a roll-up model. Um, mm -hmm. You can use a lot of names for it. Uh, we've called it a buy and exploit business model in the past, and 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 back in back in those earlier days, uh, the market was such that smaller companies would do very well, hmm. um, and it was easy to raise money. So it wasn't really the time of the. Um, horizontal wells uh i mean horizontal wells were being drilled but the horizontal multi-frack technology was was kind of in its infancy or or or, or just starting out so uh a lot of the in, in the early days of bonavista and a lot of what we were doing was just vertical wells yep. it was primarily um west four or just west five uh, and so we're talking about shallow to medium depths, thousand meters or less, very low cost. So we used to say back then, you know, if you're alive, you'll get five. Meaning if you were just breathing, someone would give you five million dollars to start an oil company. <laughs> and you would start an oil company and you would, you know, go out there and buy some land, drill a couple of vertical wells. If the play worked, you would start growing from there. Maybe you would do a small acquisition, two to 300 barrels a day and, and get started there and, and, and gradually build up from there. And it was somewhat self-fulfilling because if you would build this company up to about 5,000 barrels a day, you could then drop it into a royalty trust and or, hmm. or these companies that were converting to royalty trusts. And so the, the royalty trust had the best cost of capital the royalty trusts were basically hoovering up all the juniors. And there was a whole market of guys that were just building these juniors to 5,000 barrels a day. It's called a build and flip model. They were building it and then flipping it into the trust. And the trusts were just accumulating all of these companies. And it was kind of self-fulfilling because they were trading at a very high valuation relative to relative to anything else. And, mm -hmm. and, and it was self-fulfilling. So, I mean, that was that was the start of, 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 of how we developed Bonavista. It was actually the way even Canadian Natural started. You know, I mean, when Canadian Natural started, they didn't have Horizon. They didn't have all of these things that they're, that they're, they're currently, they'd started as a, as, as a simple roll-up model. 
and they yeah. just got bigger and bigger and bigger and they never really went into the trust transition but um bonavista when we took it from 3000 barrels a day to about 35000 barrels a day and at the time you know we were trading at a certain level and we felt that we would be trading at a much greater combined level if we split Bonavista into like a 3,500 barrel a day Explore Co. And then if the rest of Bonavista went forward as a, as a Trust Co. Hmm. So, so that's exactly what we did. And then New Vista was the, was the uh, Explore Co. that came out of that. We took some of the worst, highest decline, highest, lowest net back gas weighted assets in Eastern Alberta from Bonavista. And we started there. Um, that being said, you know, both of these companies had a pretty good cost of capital. Um, the roll-up model works in terms of growing your value per share on a yearly basis if there is a steady diet of the kind of properties you need to kind of grow your business on a, on, on a per share basis. And right. if you're really careful and you are diligent in how you deploy that capital. So you mentioned you guys would drill just, you know, basic vertical wells and you mentioned the, you know, hydraulic horizontal fracking. And I started this book last night, um, the frackers. Okay. And, uh, I'm literally on page 29 and it's about the, uh, advent of kind of the horizontal fracking technology. So that was, so that just kind of made me think of that. But when you when you go to buy wh wh whether it's buying these properties right in the roll-up model or saying you know hey like we've got some land we already own like let's try drilling were you guys trying to back into some sort of you know hey let's be the lowest you know first decile cost operator or were you just trying to drill cheaply and then hoping that the spread would be enough and you know again i might i might ask a lot of stupid questions just because you know from where i am it's a lot of this stuff is 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 greener so Walk me through kind of your thought process on like, all right, let's drill here and drill A, and this is what we want. This is what we expect. So if we go back to kind of the early days of Bonavista and 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 what we were trying to do back then, I mean, you want to be a lower cost operator. Bonavista again, it started with about three thousand barrels a day. New Vista started with Bonavista's kind of worst asset. Journey started with about. 4,000 barrels a day when we kind of restructured Sword Energy Trust uh, or Sword, Sword Energy and, 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 and converted it to. So you, you start with a suite of assets already. Um, in my view, none of these, nowadays you can, there's a bunch of ways you can do it, but nowadays you can just start a company with like a hundred million dollars and mm -hmm. go out and buy some resource type assets, drill some horizontal multi-frack wells and take your shot on that yep. kind of business. Yep. Um, that is one way to do it. The other way to do it, which I think if you're putting all your money into it, it, it might be less risky, but it's it's to go out here and, and buy some producing assets, buy them for a reasonable value that have some reasonable cash flow, redeploy that cash flow, sometimes raise a little bit of more money through either debt or through shares, and just gradually build up this business. And, and, and then buy more assets that kind of look like you do. So, I mean, I think Journey, Bonavista was a fairly low cost operator, but we would never be as low cost as some of the companies today that have nothing but a resource play. 
Like New Vista will be able to have now because they've gradually shed most of their conventional assets and moved completely to that money resource, will be able to have a very uh, a lower cost operation than 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 Journey ever will, or a lower cost operation than than Bonavista would have. Now the difference though is that back in those days, and and I still think today this is important, but it's not done as much, is that. Keith, Keith's view was that if you own all the facilities, you rule the world. Yep. My view is that facilities matter, but land matters more. You need to own all the land. If you don't own the land and you don't own the resource, you won't get the reserves to use the facilities that you own. So hmm. between Keith and I, we kind of had it covered because he wanted to own all the facilities and I wanted to own all the land. So we would go into an area and we would do one deal, and then we do another deal, and then we do another deal. Then we noticed that this piece of land was kind of missing from our puzzle and we try and add that. By the time you're done four or five areas and four or five ass, uh, deals in an area, you kind of control a little area, right? And, and so that's kind of what Journey does in some ways. We go and we look at, we buy a pool and, and we own the whole pool. So maybe we have a partner for 10 or 15% or whatever, but in general, we own the pool. And so when you own the pool and you're drilling inside an existing pool, those lands don't expire um, because everything is held by production. So it's more of optimizing stuff within that pool. Now that comes with higher costs, more moving parts, more pipelines, lower per well rates. I get all that, but it also comes with materially lower declines. So if, if, you can, if you can own these pools that are long life, large oil in place, low recovery, and you can just keep working that and exploiting it and, and drilling infill wells and optimizing your production and your facilities, you know, I think you can make a tremendous amount of money. And I think it's an area where people aren't focused in on. Now, at some point in the history of journey, we'll get large enough so that we can afford to go into a resource play without risking the company. What I mean by that is if we can if we can get into an area, like so we just tied up about 50 sections of Duvernay land in and around where we have a gas plant at one of four underneath what we already have as an active glauconitic play. So we're drilling the glauconite, we're building a power plant, we own and control a key gas plant in the area. So we control those facilities and all the pipes leading to it. So we have a dominant position in the area. Now we've got about 50 sections of Duvernay land underneath it. It could cost us ultimately a billion dollars to develop that. But if you really want to fully develop it, you're going to need, you know, water retention ponds. You're going to need to drill, you know, four or five wells to start. I mean, you may need 50 to $60 million or more to start out. Yeah. We're at a point in our life cycle where it's hard to just all of a sudden spend $60 million on a play. Yeah. On, and if you if it doesn't quite work out the way you want, or if it takes a long time, or if you have a commodity price contraction in the middle of it, it you know it 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 just it it puts a lot of pressure on your business plan. So if you can get a little bit larger by continuing to do these accretive roll-up models, and and you can you can actually make a lot of money for share. Like I'll put our share price performance against anybody else over the last couple of years um since the since the bank buyout and you know you've got all these great resource players are they doing better than us for shareholders i don't know it's diff it's a different approach but they're not necessarily doing better on a mm -hmm. per share basis 
Mm-hmm. And well, you mentioned, you know, the benefits of being bigger and that's kind of where, where that scale comes in, where you can, you know, have, make these, make these bets. And if everything goes wrong, like the underwriting loss isn't, you know, 20 to 25% of your business, it's maybe, maybe four or 5%. And that's a huge difference in terms of, Hey, do we go with this or not? Because then the risk reward is so much higher. Um, and it allows you to kind of have that freedom, freedom to, to, to do those plays. But I want to, I want to go back. So part of this roll up strategy is obviously buying assets from other people. So there has to be a seller on the other side of this thing. What makes the seller sell to you guys? And then why are you guys afforded the opportunity? Because I'm sure there's a lot of kind of smart players around where you guys are and maybe someone else is trying to do something similar. So do you guys experience any sort of bidding wars? I mean, I know there's ESG constraints and a lot of capital that's been committed to green tech that's not been committed to fossil fuels. So I get that, but removing that kind of constraint, why are you guys able to get these deals at good prices? Well, uh, it's what I would say is there's, there's quite a bit more to it than people normally think of. I mean, you, you think so an asset will come up for sale and you know at the end of the day there's there's obviously expectations of the buyer and there's expectations of of the seller and a lot there's a lot of periods where the market doesn't transact or most of the deals are kind of hung i always i i like to say that you know uh, a lot of the transactions happen between the cycles as you go from one to the other Mm -hmm. so that at the top of the cycle it's difficult to transact because people want, you know, three or four times cash flow and the cash flow is so high. You can't really pay that for an asset at the top of the cycle at the bottom of the cycle, you know, they, they won't even take five times cash flow because the cash flows artificially low. So things kind of happen in the middle when it's kind of going up and, and going down and, and there's a seasonality to it as well. But if we if we go back and we take a look at the transaction that we just did, and you know it's it's a fairly complicated transaction. But what happens is you bid on that asset suite kind of in March, April. One of the things that we were able to do is we were able to use an investment banker to convince the vendor that we could close on the asset. So we were buying an asset from a company that was materially larger than ours, a company that had decided strategically they no longer wanted that asset. So Hmm. that means there's a high degree that that company is going to sell that asset and they're not going to fight over the last $10 million or whatever. They're not going to, they're not going to dig their heels in and get myopic about getting the top dollar. They got, they got two things they want. They want, someone who is going to look after that asset. So those assets are never going to come back to them. Someone who's not going to all of a sudden buy the asset and one week later go bankrupt. And they want someone who has a high degree of ability to close the transaction. Someone who that they're comfortable, they're going to close it. They're not going to go through six months of hell and then you're going to walk away from it. Right. So they, they want those two things. And so we were able to get, you know, some advisors here to help us, you know, in that, in that vein, the other thing that we were willing to do is we were willing to be flexible. So we, we said, you know, we've got an asset that we really want. 
We've got some other assets that we would like. We don't need those assets. We can plug and play some different assets in here. We want to be part of the solution. If we get this one big thing, we'll take two or three of these other things and, and be part of it so you have to do less transactions. So we had a lot of flexibility in that. Um, another thing that, that happened throughout this, I mean, you, you, you build a reputation that you can do these things. I mean, at Bonavista, I mean, sadly, we developed quite a reputation for being quite grindy at Bonavista. So a lot of times in the in the later periods of Bonavista, when people would look at a bid from Bonavista or they would look at a bid from somebody else, they would say, well, you know, if we go with Bonavista, they're probably going to try and lower that bid during the due diligence phase. And the re our reputation wasn't that great. Hmm. So, you know, when I went to New Vista, that was one of the things that I really wanted to change. I wanted to make sure that people knew that we were a reputable guy to do business on. If we, if we came in here and said, we're going to do this, then something really radical has to happen for us to change our mind or right. our view. We're not going to all of a sudden turn around and try and just nickel and dime at every single corner. I mean, there's obviously, you got to pay attention in these things. There's a million different things that can get you later on that you want to make sure that you address in the PSA, but the ability to integrate these things, the ability to do these things, the integrity to say what we, what we, uh, to do what we, we say we're going to do, all of those things factor into how well these things tend to go. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to convince them that, Hey, these guys have done lots of transactions. They're going to continue to do lots of transactions. They're good at it. They're a reputable company. They can raise the money if they needed to. Now, because this process was so long and so drawn out, um, it was unfortunate in the event that oil was really good when we first bid on this. And, and then the market started to deteriorate a little bit in kind of May, June, July. Mm -hmm. So by the time we were ready to announce this acquisition, we kind of lost our equity window. Um, right. along with another counterparty that was also buying assets from the same vendor at the same time, both of us lost our equity window. And so the other party, they wound up waiting. We had smaller portion of equity in our, in our piece. We had built into our piece, Hey, you know, we're going to have trouble financing this thing completely. If you could do a little bit of help with the financing and put in that we put in this thing, what we're calling a vendor take back. So as part of this vendor take back, it's something that we came up with is just you'll give a we'll give you some money over time. We'll let the asset itself pay for itself over time. We'll we'll pay you a 10% interest on the vendor take back and we'll give you principal payments on a monthly basis mm -hmm. so that you can get the whole asset paid off in, you know, under a year. Uh, but if the commodity price deteriorated, maybe that takes a little bit longer. So we convinced them that they would give us this vendor take back. And so what we wound up doing is we wound up saying, look, you know, we know you want to get this done. We also want to get this done. We know we don't have an equity window, but if you could take a few shares of journey and maybe increase the size of this vendor take back a little bit, um, we can do this without equity and we're willing to, 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 to put that forward. We also needed AIMCO on our side 
to move some term debt around so that we could use the cash that we were going to pay AIMCO and give them that cash as well. So, and then the other thing that happened is that between the effective date and the closing date, this asset was cash flowing a lot of money. So we bought it at $140 million May 1st. By the time we closed it in November, it was 112. So, I mean, this asset had paid for a good chunk of itself between the effective date and the closing date. Yep. So, and, and we also had to get this through the AER. I mean, that's the other thing is that if we were a small fly-by-night company and this was a fairly large suite of assets, the AER may say no to the transfers. So again, convinced them that we could close it, did what we said we were going to do. We were flexible on the assets we wanted to buy. It would have been easy, like if we had if we had come up with a plan that we ultimately wound up with on day one and bid it that way, um, I would say that the asset might have gone to somebody else. But mm. because we got into this and we were into it so far into it, and then we lost the equity window and we had done so much and so much due diligence had been done and so much work had been done. At some point, both parties have a lot of impetus to work together to yeah. get something closed because they yep. take a lot of time. So I think sometimes things change throughout the process and how flexible you are and how transparent you are. And are you willing to, like we used our advisors a tremendous amount on this transaction. We used TPH, who is the asset vendor, a tremendous amount who helped us with the vendor take back. And then Enterplus themselves, when we were directly dealing with them, they were fantastic to deal with. So, I mean, it there are a lot of things that go into it. In terms of finding out what assets are out there, in terms of, you know, if we look at the next assets going forward from, from Journey's perspective, I mean, there are a lot of things that we don't even get shown because mm -hmm. people don't think that we have the wherewithal or the financial flexibility to buy the asset and they, right. they don't have the, we don't have the money or, or whatever, and it doesn't look like we can raise the money and then they don't sell the asset and then they come back. So, I mean, so, I mean, part of it is to stay with these assets, you know, and I have a bunch of rules that I like to live by on these things. And, and I love to, I love to kind of, look at these things and say the, the biggest thing is right up front knowing which ones are going to fit which ones are going to go for what i mean we don't look for assets that we don't think we're ultimately going to be able to afford so i mean there may be an asset that we really desire that is something like xto's money assets the white cap bought or some of the charlie lake assets the tamarack valley bought like really great you know maybe higher decline but brand new production big wells love that stuff but know that we can't really compete in that so choose to focus in areas where we think that we have a bit of a competitive advantage mm -hmm. you mentioned the equity window and how things can quickly change with the underlying commodity and that's one of the nuances of of a commodity market and something like oil is um, so much of the cash flows and profits are obviously tied to whatever the underlying commodity is. And so when you go to underwrite some of these ideas, how do you think about the commodity price itself? Because on one hand, you can say, oh, you can take the bullish picture like, oh, I think oil is going to be 100, 200 in three to five years. So, um, you know, if you if you if you think that's the case, it's almost like lowering your discount rate to like three percent. Everything becomes so much more affordable and within your scope because you think oil is going to be so much higher. Um, but do you have some sort of, you know, baseline price or some sort of, you know, bull bear base case when you go to underwrite these things? Yeah, I mean, 
there are two ways to look at these things. You can look at these things on an absolute value basis from the bottom up at the time when you're doing your evaluation, or you can kind of look at them also on the relative basis. You know, hey, we're trading, we're trading at a certain level, therefore we can pay more for it. Like if we're trading at 10 times cash flow, can we pay nine times for something? Probably. Can we pay six times? Certainly. Right. Yeah. If the thing's only worth three times in a normal environment, but in a normal environment we're trading at four times. And now we're trading at 10 times in a really high environment, then this thing's probably worth five times. So, I mean, to me, the accretion is part of it. But I guess my fundamental belief, and so I've been, like I say, since 97 at Bonavista to today, I've been mostly doing this buy and exploit model in some form or another. And from 97 till probably 2014 till our IPO, each and every year commodity prices either kind of went up or stayed the same. I mean, plus or minus a little bit, but some years they went up quite a bit. Some years they didn't go up much at all. Some years they stayed the same. But in general, the trend was rising prices. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the year, you get this kind of little bit of um, money for the capital program that you spent plus the value of your base increases. So the overall rate of return is tremendous and it looks terrific. And that is great for the first few years in Bonavista, the first few years in New Vista, the first few years in Journey's public life was the complete opposite of that. So, you know, from 2014 to 2020, every year you would come in there with your capital program, which was one thing, and then you would have a declining value of your base. Yep. So it looked in some years, your business didn't grow at all. It actually shrank. So, I mean, the, the way I look at it is if you have to tell GM every year for the next six years, they got to sell a Cadillac for $10,000 less than they did the year before. At some point by around 2020, GM kind of says, I've done. And they yep. throw their hands in the air and they kind of, they kind of leave the car making business. So, I mean, this is, this is what we went through as an industry. And when I look at where we're at now, in 2021, prices were slightly higher than, well, quite a bit higher actually in the reserve report than they were in 2020. In 2022, they were higher, <laughs> like January 2022 was higher than January 2021. So when I look at that, these commodity, so every year we're now, we're now back in this kind of rising commodity price environment. And it, does it stay for three years? Does it stay for five years? Does it, so here's, here's kind of my view on how long it stays for mm -hmm. and, and what happens is that, you know, like we've seen so many ups and downs in these cycles and, you know, we just shot, saw oil shoot up to $125 a barrel, yep. uh, probably got ahead of itself. Yep. And now it's backed off to the, you know, seventies, eighties this is still the same cycle. So the, the way I view these cycles, like I think, I think basically 97 to 2014, I mean, I know there was a big wow in the middle of 2008, but in general, that was kind of a cycle. Yeah. 2014 to 2020 was one cycle. It wasn't, it wasn't 10 different cycles. There was a lot of macro in that cycle, but it was kind of one cycle. Is, is 2020 going to, is that cycle going to end at 2022? Has that cycle ended? I, I don't know. I mean, I mean, maybe that's a 2020 to 2030 cycle 
and maybe we're just in the middle of it and maybe there's going to be a ton of volatility in it but from from my perspective as a guy who's out there trying to drill these things you know i think uh, i don't know i think energy is complicated like i i, I believe that you know um if I take somebody out to one of our sites and show them kind of a place where we're only producing like a couple hundred barrels a day, but it has a compressor and a D high and everything like the insurance guys, for instance, they look at it and go, wow, this is a <laughs> ton of equipment in here. How much oil are you producing? Well, we're producing a couple hundred barrels a day. And they're like, really with all this stuff. And we're like, yeah, that it's not, you know, these assets, there's a reason that they're low decline, but you know, there's a lot of moving parts. And so, so to me, I think this industry is fairly complicated. Mm -hmm. It's not cheap. The Permian basically provided almost the entire world's need for growth yes. from that 2014 to 2020 period. Is it, is it, is it done? Not by a long shot, but is it going to have that same accelerative growth that it did? Probably not. Bunch of reasons. Not as much capital, more financial discipline. But the other, the other thing is that the, the costs are increasing. So when I look at Journey and our operating costs, again, we're on the more marginal end. We got a lot of moving parts. But about 25% of our cost now, last year, was power. And power costs are increasing fairly dramatically for oh, us. Yeah. And we use a lot of power. So so when I look at that, how much is it? Is it $3 or $4 a barrel? It could be that. So when I look at power, just in terms of power, our operating wow. cost is up 3 or $4 a barrel. When I look at our capital cost to drill a well and to bring stuff on, is that three or four dollars a barrel? It's at least three or four dollars a BOE in terms of if you take the life of the well and then the, the incremental capital costs and and your so your F and D costs are going up five dollars a barrel. Your operating costs are going up five to seven dollars a barrel. You, you put those things together, and what I would say is us being on the more marginal end of things. I mean, I used to call fifty fifty dollars a barrel the death zone journey mm -hmm. it was like it was like we're above eight thousand meters you know we can survive but not for long we're eating ourselves every day that we and then by sixty dollars we were fine by yep. seventy dollars we were laughing well i think all those numbers are gone up 10 to 15 dollars right so i think the death zone for us is now sixty dollars or sixty five dollars and by seventy five dollars we're okay by eighty five dollars we're laughing yep. so i think i think we've kind of as an industry you know there there are going to be pockets within our industry that can easily make money at $60 a barrel. The Permian could still make money at $60 a barrel, but now you see guys going out and drilling offshore Gulf of Mexico. All of a sudden there's a bunch of activity in the Gulf of Mexico. Guys want to buy Tri-Ocean because there's rigs moving into the Gulf. Well, that doesn't happen at $60 a barrel. No. I mean, they don't make money in the Gulf at $60 a barrel. So they're looking at longer term projects and longer term pricing that is well north of that. And so, so I believe that the new range per se is $75 to $95 a barrel. I personally believe that. Break evens, like just the industry cost curve has gone up to that's where you need to be. I think to, in order to break even and give you a little bit of a return, 
Yeah. I think you need to be in that 75 to $95 a barrel. And in order to open up these basins that are going to be a little bit less economic than the Permian per se, right? And, and yep. it's heyday, right? Or even the Permian costs, like the Permian costs, there's going to be well interference. There's going to be things. Those are going to go up. Yep. So, so I believe that we're into a little bit of a longer term kind of bull run on oil that's going to keep us between 75 and $95 a barrel. That doesn't mean it can't go to 120 and that doesn't mean it can't go to 60 or 50 or even minus 37. I mean, <laughs> there can be all kinds of wows and flutters in that period, but I believe that in general, that's going to be your trend over the next five or 10 years. And when you look at what's in all of our reserve reports, um, you know, you've got reasonable prices this year, call it, you know, $75 a barrel or, or, or $77 a barrel WTI that drops maybe to $70 next year and then $65 in 2025 or 65 to 70. Yep. And you've kind of got a slow escalation from there, from that 65 to 70, it's kind of escalating it, you know, two or 3% a year from there. So you're looking at a $70 a barrel world. Uh, or maybe a 75 at the most in the reserve report. And so my belief is that as we gradually move from this 70 to $75 to like 95 to 100, the, the barrels under management are going to matter and they're going to become more valuable. Mm -hmm. So the bigger the base that you can build, the bigger the business that you can build, the more value lift you're going to get in that base as the as the as the commodity gradually moves up so yep. i mean i want to protect the company if the commodity doesn't move up but i also want to position the company for the maximum value accretion for, for shareholders if it does and that's a fine balance what you just mentioned positioning the company to capture but also protecting it because again like you're balancing off of a very volatile underlying commodity and so how do you actually think about that strategy in terms of, okay, like let's make sure we're sound because I want to, I want to get into living through that last cycle, the 2014 to 2020, you plowing in most of your life savings into journey at, at 12, writing it down, um, living through that gut wrenching, like literally living through negative $35 oil. Like, how do you, how do you hold that in mind? Like that reality that's possible while also not leaving too much, you know, you know, too much, too much cake left uneaten, if that makes sense. So are we, are you talking primarily about capital allocation and, 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 and how you would allocate your capital or are yeah, we it's, talking it's, about it's, what it's, happened in 2020? What do, where do you want to go? Let's start with what happened in 2020 and kind of riding, living through that, 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 that last down cycle, because a lot of energy companies went bust. And, you know, you mentioned it in past interviews and in past, you know, investor presentations, the bank froze up, you couldn't get lending. A lot of these guys went under. So how, how, how were you guys able to survive and then using those lessons, how that impacts capital allocation? Okay. So, um, like, first of all, I mean, I think journey is in really great shape now. So, you know, especially in light of this recent acquisition we just talked about, but I mean, that obviously it's not the whole story because it was touch and go for us a few years back. So I think it's great that we're doing this. Um, I think I'd like to give you kind of an understanding of what we went through yeah. in 2020 
and, and what it was what it was like for us and 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 really is is myself and um, Jerry Gillowitz, uh, who's our CFO, and and you know we had about thirty people. Well, we had close to forty people at Journey as we went into twenty twenty, and then we kind of wound up with twenty seven coming out of it. But um, we we had a lot of people, but it was primarily Jerry and I. I'd say that we're kind of on the the front lines here, and and we were the ones that were super invested in the company we had, he joined me fairly early on in 2012 we took the company public together we've been together and trying to build it up and trying to build the culture and you know we were the two that were primarily directly affected by this and i'll give you some ideas of some some sort of real life examples of, of yeah. what's going to happen because i mean one of the things that happens is first of all we never failed to meet our obligations. We never missed any payments of any kind. I would say we could pretty easily survive. Like we might have needed some help when oil hit minus 37. You know, let's call it April, May, June. Yeah. April, May, June, we had a tough time and we needed some help. But we could still meet most of our obligations. And if we looked at it on a six month or 12 month basis, we could have easily met all of our obligations with no problem at all. So this wasn't, uh, hey, you're not making enough money to meet all of your obligations and it's getting worse every month. This is a, hey, we need a little bit of help temporarily and we'll ride through this thing and we'll be fine. So we could easily have survived, but the banks didn't want us to uh, in terms of the banks had just decided that the relationship with Journey was over. And so here's some guys who basically took us public in 2014. They took $10 million in commissions out of our IPO when we raised $168 million. And, you know, they said, we'll give you the interim loan to buy the Penn West assets and we'll give you that loan, but we'll only give it to you if we're the guys that get to take you public. Yep. So this is, this is all a great, and I've known these guys in Bonavista. I've known these guys in New Vista. I've known these guys for 30 years. And, there's nothing but great relationships all the way through. They know that we always do what we say. We've got a great reputation with them. All that stuff goes great. And then 2014 hits, prices start to deteriorate. That's a bit of a problem, but not a huge problem. Mm -hmm. We've got a $220 million bank line and we're only like a hundred million in debt. So that's all fine and dandy. The biggest problem comes sort of in the middle of all this when there's this um, thing that's called the Redwater decision, which is a key decision here in Canada. And the Redwater decision changed everything. Well, and what the, the Redwater decision was a decision where the banks took to the Supreme Court uh, a case of a company called Redwater Resources where the company went bankrupt. And it was basically the banks versus kind of the, the government or the orphan well association and and what happened is that the supreme court decided that the cleanup costs of the well of the company mm -hmm. come first and what it meant is that in the in the old days the banks could come in here sell the company's best assets take the money pay their debt off and whatever was left over that was unsaleable or not as good a quality 
went into the orphan well fund and the government cleaned it up. Okay. Well, with the Redwater decision, all of a sudden now the government comes or the the liabilities of the company come first and the banks come second. Hmm. And so now all of a sudden the banks are in second place. Yep. And that means all of a sudden all of the banks don't want to own anything that has appreciable liabilities anymore. So they make a strategic decision to get out of anything that has a reasonable amount of, and so so what they're doing is now they're saying, okay, well your your bank line was this, and now your bank line is this is is lower because of commodity prices. But now what we're going to do is we're going to take your shut-in well liability divided by fifteen, and whatever that number is, we're going to take that number off your bank line, and they gradually just whittle your bank line away. Yeah. So in the spring of uh, in the fall of 2019, the bank said, you know, you'll be fine if you move your AIMCO term debt out further. So we did a deal with AIMCO and we moved the AIMCO term debt way out past the banks, thought we were fine. Within two weeks of doing that, the bank said, oh yeah, no, we said your line was 90, now it's 75. And, you know, we want to lower it at a million a month from 75 down to 70 kind of by next April. Wow. So we went down to 75. We started paying that off. We get into January, February, and, and now we're now prices are just tanking it and, yep. and the pandemic's in there and we're having trouble meeting it. And then they said, oh, yeah, we I know we said it was going to be 75. We want to lower it a million a month. It's actually zero. We want it all back now. <laughs> And so we're did like, you, well, so did you get that like on a phone call, an email? Like, walk me through that initial reaction. Well, it was a phone call, and and it was you know get us our money now, figure out a way to do it. And wow. you know, it wasn't like we need the money by next Tuesday at four. Yeah. It was just like we really have made a strategic relationship uh, decision in head office that we don't want to be in these wow. companies. And because because the, the banks are also thinking that commodity prices are going down year yeah. over year over year, they're seeing the Cadillacs get cheaper, right? And they're yeah. sitting there going, "These guys can't keep making Cadillacs for that." So you know, we're going to lose our money. And so the banks just basically said strategically, you know, and and to be fair, the bank that I was dealing with, there was he had thirty files, he had thirty journeys. In his portfolio, this one guy run on the bank. It's like a reverse bank run. (laughs) So, you know, he's like, don't think that you're unique in this. You know, we're asking for money back from a lot of guys. Wow. And I'm like, well, yeah, I get it. But, you know, what do we do? And so as soon as this happens, you go into this thing called forbearance. And the, the worst part of it is they take away all the guys that you've known for 30 years. And they put these other guys in. And these other guys are used to dealing with, you know, criminals, right? Guys who are literally stealing money from the company, guys who are guys who are putting forward things that have no hope of ever getting their money back that are just giant Ponzi schemes. And they're used to dealing with these guys. Yep. So they start treating you like you're they don't treat you like you've done everything that you said you were going to do for 30 years, that you've never lied to them, that you've always been honest with them, that you've cut your bank line from 220 down to 75 and you've given them all that money and that's reduced the amount of money you can have to maintain your production. So, you know, of course your production's down and 
they don't they don't think about all that they're just like how do i get out of this thing fast and then people start piling on so we had a, a gas marketing agreement and we were losing money on it every month so we're because we're selling volumes to nymex and malin and chicago and dawn and we were paying we were paying like a dollar 30 in mcf to sell to those markets but of course those markets imploded just like echo just like every market yep. and so then that dollar that we were paying to get it there was ridiculous and so we're losing all this money on that and we said you know what we need a little bit of help can you just give us a little bit of help and we've been dealing with these guys for 20 years yep. and and then all of a sudden they go well you know what we've got a two-year contract here let's crystallize this loss at the very bottom of the market because i mean that not only did the not only did the price collapse the whole strip collapse right so yeah. he wants to crystallize the loss at the very bottom of the market or the gain on their side and make me sign on the dotted line and say i'm going to pay you six million us well the bank's not going to let me do that yeah so i mean we're sitting here going well we can't do that you know all we want is three months of help we can, we can add it on at the end of the contract just just give us a hand here yeah and they're like no you're a bad risk wow. and anyway at the end of the day they wound up taking our revenue so we sold them five million of gas that wasn't contracted to them and nine million that was contracted to them and they took like nine hundred thousand in revenue when we really needed it in in march and then they took it again in april and by then we'd move the gas but i mean it's just like people would start asking for deposits and things like that and i mean we just people would pile on but nobody piled on like the banks and i guess this is kind of my favorite story from 2020 is this this banker guy that I'd known for 30 years that we had a relationship and, and, and to be quite honest, I liked the guy, but he goes to me, he goes, Alex, it's like, there's a bunch of dogs around a pie in the center of the table. And you know, if the pie is big enough, everybody eats all the dogs eat until they're full. But you know, if the pie's too small, then the big dog eats and the little dogs survive. And he goes, in this example, I'm the big dog. And I'm like, okay, first of all, journey is not a pie. You know, we're people, we have lives, we contribute to the community, we have families, we have long-term relationships with people like yourself. We've made money for people. We've done what we said we were gonna do. You know, this is not a issue of the pie being big or small i mean we had a 20 220 million dollar bank line we can easily pay the interest on our loan the problem is that you want your 75 million that the line has gone down to it now you now you say it's zero and you want all your money back and so the, the other problem with the the whole pie analogy is that this is a very dynamic business and you know how the ups and downs work and the size of the pie is actually dependent on when you choose to eat the pie yep. and you're the only dog that wants to eat the pie now all the rest of the dogs are fine we're not hungry we yep. can wait until the pie gets bigger and we can all eat yeah so why don't you do that and so you know i kept reminding him of this story probably about six times finally he was he's telling me look i don't even remember telling you that story i'm like yeah you do classic and and so I mean, this is the kind of thing that we went through every day. And, and yeah. the other problem is they made us appoint this monitor. And this is where I have tremendous respect and tremendous feeling 
for our, our CFO, Jerry Gilowitz and what he went through in 2020, because we had to, we had this monitor and the bank made us appoint this guy and they make us pay him. So we have no money. We're not paying our people. We're not doing anything, but we got to pay this monitor. Wow. And this monitor basically takes, so Jerry has to do a daily forecast every day for the next 13 weeks. And every week he has to add another week on it. So it's got to be a 13 week day to day cash flows in cash flows out. Then the monitor takes this forecast and basically presents it to the bank. Yep. And then we try and get another two weeks of forbearance, you know? And so this kind of went on. And I remember one day Jerry got a bill for a guy who was a supervisor in part of the monitor and he, his, his hourly rate was $1,400 an hour. And here Jerry, who's going to lose his severance and lose all of his money and lose everything that he had has to write a check to this guy for $1,400 an hour to check his own work. Oh my and it was, gosh. It was, it was an unbelievable day. And we want to pay in these guys out of journeys funds, $600,000 over the course of that six month period, just to supervise what we were doing and, and tell the banks never changed the number, never helped. You know, at, at some point I would say they were counterproductive because the banks wanted us to want to process and we refused. I mean, that's partly how we survived too. I mean, if, if you really want to know how we survived, it's banks wanted us to run a process and Jerry and I go, okay, well, if we run a process and we get, you know, any number smaller than the bank debt, we lose our severance, you know, we lose our employment contracts, we lose our jobs, you know, we lose all of our equity that we have in Journey. Everyone loses their their equity that they have in Journey. You know, there's nothing in it for us to do this. So, but the banks can force us to do it. So it's like, we want you to run a process. No, we don't want to run one. Well, you have to, because we're the bank and we say you have to, and we're saying, no, no, we don't, we don't have to. We're a public company. You know, you've got access to all of our public data. You go run your process and you let us know how it works out, you know, and, and that's the kind of, that was the kind of back and forth we had, you know, respectfully, but that, that yeah. fight. Yep. And then the same, we went through the same fight with AIMCO. We had this guy, David Tiley, who's our relationship guy at AIMCO, who has been in our corner forever. And he was our best, he's been our best friend forever. He's still our best friend. And he took it to the committee and they said, oh man, Journey, I don't know, given where everything is right now, do we really want to put more money into this story? And Dave's like, well, you kind of have to, or there's nothing left. And they're like, yeah, but why don't we just write it off and move on? And they sent him back twice. And then he came back, like the, it was the third time that we finally got this through. So, I mean, we had tenacity with AIMCO. Dave says, I need a partner. I'm like, we don't have a partner. No one's going to come in alongside you because of the way the debt is structured and the, the fact that you're sitting ahead of them um, and, and our risk levels. We don't have a partner, but here's what we can do. We can sell this asset and you can give us the money right now to fund the bank and then we'll sell this asset. And within a month, we'll give you a sort of a portion of this money back. And then six months later, we'll give you another portion back. So you won't have much exposed, you know, a year out. And so that's the agreement that we kind of kind of made with him when the banks found out that we were going to do that the bank said we order you to sell the asset and give us the money and then we're like well then what happens to you do you go away no 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 then you'll owe us you know x dollars less and we're like no no 
we're not selling any assets or changing any value in this company to give the money to you unless you go away forever. And so we kept tying all of these things together. We kept working with AIMCO. Every, every two weeks, Jerry and I came up with a new story why we needed another two weeks. And we did this for the better part of six months until finally AIMCO got on side, uh, the banks got on side taking a discount. We promised, we renegotiated our office lease that created $5 million for Journey uh, in, the, in the reduction in, in rent from, you know, basically the bank buyout to February of 2024. I took that money and gave it all to the bank. I said, okay, you know what? AIMCO is going to give you 38 million. I'll give you 43. Here's another five coming from Journey, you know, that, that we're going to save on our office lease. So as we get the money from our office lease, we have to pay the bank. So, I mean, this is all, we basically, continue to focus on this and we refused to do anything that would ultimately have led to a situation where the company wasn't going to survive and then eventually the company did survive and boy we're, i mean given that moving commodity prices we were really lucky and and aimco was really supportive one of the things that was kind of a one-off for us last year uh, not last year or in 2020 that that I don't think anyone else did is we bought the banks out at a discount. So we created, you know, 25 to 30 million of value in doing that, of, of uplift in value. AIMCO could have said, you know, now you owe me the entire bank debt. I'll buy out the bank for the discounted value and you owe me the entire thing. They didn't. They said, no, you only owe me what I paid you to buy out the bank debt all of that uplift can go to the common shareholders of Journey, of which AIMCO is one. And so because of that, I mean, I've never heard of a case where the second lien helps buy out the first lien and passes the savings at a discount and passes the savings on to the common shareholders. Yeah, and so that, wow. that gave Journey a huge leg up from day one. And then after that, we actually couldn't sell the asset that we wanted to sell, the, the guys who went to buy it they couldn't raise the funds. And by the time they, we kept giving them extensions, but at some point in the spring of 2020, uh, 2021, uh, I told, uh, I, I told uh, AIMCO that we should, we should keep it. And I finally convinced AIMCO that we could keep it. And that turned out to be, that turned out to be the best deal we did that year was the deal that we didn't do. We didn't sell the asset mm -hmm. at a discount to these guys at bargain basement prices that were negotiated in, you know, late 2020, we kept it and it was worth a ton at the end of the year with the prices going up and prices of gas in particular going up and the power project that we built down there, we we're going to sell it all for mm -hmm. a really low price. And, 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 and Dave was supportive and he said, okay, but I still going to need my money. And we're like, yeah, well, here's the payment schedule you're going to get. I'm going to pay everything I said I'm going to pay up and I'm going to keep the asset too. And Dave says, well, if you can do that, then that's good. And we'll, we'll give you the time to do that. So it's, you know, you really find out who your friends are when the chips are down like that, right? Yeah. You really find out who you can rely on and who you can't. And, and it was, it was an, it was an incredible time. And I've heard, I've seen on Twitter so many stories about guys from 2020 yeah. and, and the things that they had to do. One guy had to basically sell his house and live in a trailer, you know, and, and, and now, you know, people look at us like, Oh, we're making money and we're making all this money. <laughs> and we're just like these evil people that are making, they have no idea what we, we put ourselves on the line 
Yeah. And, 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 you know, in, in 2020, we were, we were all finished and, 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 you know, a lot of us were finished and mm -hmm. like, I mean, I still own some Bonavista shares or own some Bonavista shares that basically in 2020 Bonavista had too much debt and they could easily have met all of their obligations, but they were one of those cases where the second lien came in and recapped the company, paid the first lien, but wiped out all the common shareholders. Mm. And, and that's the thing, right? And when you look at the, 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 the people in that organization today, you know, they've had a lot more turnover than we have at Journey. Like, I mean, we survived and we feel like we've gone to war together and survived. Yeah. You know, it's the most proud thing oh, that yeah. Jerry and I have. Like, Jerry and I are more proud of that than anything we've ever done. It's got to be, man, like, on, on one hand, I, I, I love stories like that. And really, that's, that's kind of the whole point of this podcast is to, is to broadcast these stories because people don't hear them and people need to hear them because public investors, they live behind the screen. They live in Excel. They live in these spreadsheets. They just attach a multiple to some arbitrary EBIT number, and they have no idea what goes on behind the scenes. And you mentioned a lot of stuff that happened corporately with you know, everything that could have gone wrong went wrong everything friends turned their backs you thought you had you know this crutch the crutch fell out like nowhere to turn and it's not even to begin to discuss the 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 personal and the physical and the mental anguish that that all has on a person and on people in the company and so you know i don't i don't i don't want to get kind of too um you know like heady about it but how how much of a toll did that take on you personally like alex verge the person not necessarily alex verge the ceo of journey well um i'd say for jerry and i you know a reasonable part of our identity comes from our day-to-day -day work and yep. what we do right so i mean i remember going into i remember going into audrey uh, my wife and saying you know i know i put all this money in a journey and and she runs a company called Questor Technology, uh, and I remember saying to her over the table, you know, don't screw it up because that's all the kids are going to get. Wow. <laughs> you know, you've got you've got like I'm I'm sorry. I didn't think this would happen, but I don't see a way out. This was probably yeah. after the first time that Amco's investment committee turned it down. I said, yeah. you know, I'm really thinking that now this is kind of the end, you know, and, and, you know, I'm not going to have a severance. I'm actually going to have a million dollar tax liability because of something that I created in 2012. Cause I've got some stock that has a $9 and 60 cent cost base where if it went out at zero, it would be all on my T4 at 960. So, um, I actually, was going to have a tax bill and no money to pay for it. And I said, you know, I, I'm so sorry. And she kind of looked at me and she kind of said, you'll figure it out. And, and that was just like, <laughs> it's just like, that was it. It's just, just, don't talk to me, just go figure it out. And, wow. uh, you know, she runs a company too, and she's been through the same kind of ups and downs. She runs a service company in this business. And I mean, we've been through so much volatility over the years. I mean, she just, she's in, she's even more optimistic than I am about life and everything in general. And, and she just kind of said, you'll, you'll figure it out. You'll, you'll, you'll figure it out. She never, never doubted it. But 
when we came back together, you know, and so for me, uh, I'm this weird guy. I, I like wear my heart on my sleeve. If, yeah. if, if you look at me and you look at me for more than 30 seconds, you will know exactly what is going on in my head. Hmm. So it was fortunate that we kind of had the COVID thing going because I literally hid for the better part of that year. Like yeah. a lot of our stuff was remote, but I was hiding. I was updating the board constantly. We were in constant communication with all of our board members. I had, but with journey employees, I didn't do much. So hmm. when we got back together, um, obviously morale was great. No one could believe that we survived. Everyone was worried. We got back together. One of the guys, uh, my VP ops said, you know, you need to, you need to sit down with people. I mean, like what have like employee breakfast? No, no. Like when you first took over sword and you started calling people at random and meeting everybody, you need to meet every single person in this company. You need to buy them coffee or lunch or something. You need to have one-on-one with every single person. Yeah. So I did. It took me like almost half a year, but wow. I had meet. And some of these meetings were three hours. Some of them were one hour. Some of them were half an hour in my office. Some of them were four hours. And, and so I had these meetings with these people. And that one of the things that kept coming back was you kind of left us, Alex. And I'm like, That's yeah, I know, I know. But, but what, what would I do? You know, what did you want me to do? Yeah. And I mean, cause you know that I can't lie, right? First of all, you know that I've never lied to anybody, especially not the people that work with me. And you know that I couldn't have lied. So yeah. I would have come in and told you, we're all going to go down the toilet. Is that what you wanted to hear? No, we wanted, we wanted you to lie to us until it was all going to be fine. I'm like, sorry, I couldn't do it. Yeah, It wasn't in my nature. And that's not what I can do. That's not what I'm capable of. And I'm not going to beat myself up for not being able to lie to you. Yeah. I thought it was better to hide mm. and not tell you what was going on than to tell you the truth. Because if I told you the truth, you wouldn't have liked the answer. So I said, now we are where we are. We got to move forward. What I will tell you is I know companies where they've been recapped, new management, they're different. The morale in that company and the culture in that company didn't survive. In yeah. the case of our company, the morale just went through the roof. Yeah. And and, and people, people come to me and say, aren't you burned out? Like, aren't you like destroyed by what happened? Like, how the hell can you keep going? And I'm like, look, you have no idea how much energy surviving that. Oh creates. yeah. Like the, like I, I feel more energy now than I have in the last 20 years. I'm actually having more fun than I have in the last 20 years. The company is doing well. We're in a kind of we've turned the corner. We're in a rising commodity price environment. Like the last two years have been epic in terms of value creation for shareholders and morale is tremendous. Everyone's happy. I, I just, you, if you are the guy who gets your energy from the people that are around you and they're bringing in all this energy because of the survival, you just, you catch it, you catch that wave and, and you know, it's effortless now yeah. so i'm like you know sure i'm 62 years old and 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 sure maybe maybe at some point you know i have to kind of give the reins to somebody 
younger, stronger, better, faster Alex Verge 2.0. Sure, but give me a couple of years to enjoy this thing and and yeah. and and let the fact that we survived and 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 build the value in this company to to take it to a point where I can logically hand it off to somebody. Give, give me give me a few years to to enjoy that is kind of what I'm saying because I definitely have all the I have more energy than I did ten years ago. I can just imagine, I don't know if you watched The Office or not, but I can just imagine, it's like that scene where Michael walks in um, and there's that whole, you know, they're closing down the Scranton branch and he walks in and he just goes, we are screwed. <laughs> and he just like falls over. It's like, that's probably what you would have done if you, if you, if you walked into uh, Journey HQ. I would have been, I would have been miserable and, and, you know, and, and people would have seen it and they would have taken their cue that, hey, we should all be miserable because look at Alex is miserable. Yeah, and when Alex is really, really happy, they're all really happy. So I'm like, nowadays it's just the exact opposite of that. Yeah. Well, that's that's. I mean, I love stories like that, and I love. I mean, I love stories like that because it's, you know, it's the people that survive that get to tell the stories. And so you survived, and you've got this amazing story to tell, and you've got this incredible backbone that's been built from this. And you know, we can we can kind of end our conversation with a little bit about the lessons you've learned taking from that you know, those trials and putting that into practice now with the new company, with this renewed energy and how you think about allocating the capital, allocating the resources. So you never go back to where you were, but so that you're more bent towards the optimistic longer term bull cycle. Sure. Um, I think, you know, when you look at the way we kind of did the Enterplus deal, um, it was touch and go because we lose the equity window. We still got to finance this larger deal. We know that we're going to take on more debt. But when you kind of look at how we took on the debt, we moved our AIMCO term debt and we gave them our cash. Okay, so that blows your cash and you still have your term debt. I get it. But AIMCO is a pretty friendly party. And if we get into deep trouble, I think AIMCO will help. And AIMCO is making the decision alongside us. I'm like, Dave, you know how tight the model is next spring? And he goes, yeah, I know. I said, you know, we're in this together. He goes, yeah, no problem. So, I mean, to me, you've got friendly, friendly hands with the debt. And then when we look at this vendor take back, it was a little bit of a larger vendor take back than we'd originally anticipated. It was $45 million. It's basically debt. I get it. But at $100 a barrel WTI or more, I pay them $4 million a month in interest uh, in principal payments. At 85 to 100, I pay them 3 million a month. At 70 to $85 WTI, which is the range that we're in right now, I'm paying them 2 million a month. Yep. And below $70, I pay them 1 million a month. So we built this thing so that the principal payments were structured to the commodity price so that if the commodity price sunk, we weren't sunk. And so that kind of that is an approach that we probably wouldn't have tried to do before. That's something yep. new that we've kind of learned from that. So, so I think you do need to protect the company. Um, we looked at trying to do like, if we want to, if we want to rack up our debt again, we've got to figure out a way to either keep that debt in very friendly hands or have a very quick and concrete way to pay that off. So yeah. we had more debt going into the beginning of the year in, um, you know, so 
we would have probably exited with very little or no debt. Instead, we exit with 90 million of debt and, you know, 4,000 barrels a day more production. But we knew that we had about 95 million of debt at the beginning of the year, and we we're a little bit worried. And so right as early as January, we we're, we we're going to spud three wells in Chair Hill. Um, the commodity price just dropped a little bit. And we looked at it and we said, you know what? Live to fight another day. That's the most important thing. We stopped all of our drilling program. We said, you know, we're pushing all of our development. And again, we own all the pools. Yep. So the assets don't expire. If I don't do something now, I can do it six months from now or, right. or, or 12 months from now. So in my view, we just, <laughs> we just stopped everything. And I said, the first thing we need to do is meet all of our obligations. And then after that, we can figure out. And so for the next phase for us, is just like, okay, I want to do more acquisitions. Okay, well, how do I do that? Well, yeah. I might have to take out AIMCO, uh, remaining term debt. I might have to take out this vendor take back if I'm going to add more debt to the picture. Yep. So we're looking at scenarios that might say, okay, Journey might need 75 or 80 million to take out their existing term debt and another 80 to 100 million for a new acquisition. Is that available to us? So we're kind of we're kind of looking at that as well. So that's something that if we ever want to get bigger and we want to take on more debt, we probably have to restructure everything from day one. You might as well start now. So we're kind of starting to look at that. But the one thing that I want to say is that, like, you know, I may feel strongly that successful companies over the longer term, they are optim opportunistic. They, they need to be able to take advantage of these deals when they come and, and what they are. So, I mean, I think, you know, we positioned ourselves to take advantage of opportunities that come along and we need to keep doing that. So that's why we're kind of looking at how to do that in the current environment with the current asset suite we have and how we adjust our term debt. As far as allocating capital, like I say, for us, it's not that it's not that difficult. Like we have we have pools that contain large oil in place. We have gas weighted opportunities. We have oil weighted opportunities. Now we're adding sort of a power aspect to our business. So we've got three things to allocate capital to in addition to our kind of A and D program. Mm -hmm. So, you know, but splitting that is not, it's not that difficult when we, we did a, just to be safe, we did a, uh, a CDE flow through issue in March of this year. So we raised about $20 million. We'll have to spend that on uh, development activities over the course of the next, like between between now and the end of the first quarter next year, we'll have to spend 20 million. So that will make sure that we do have a, a capital program, but it's it's pre-funded uh, by, this, by, this, by this equity race. That's something that's more conservative. It's something we might not have done uh, in the past, but you know, we were running out of our window to use the CDE uh, deductions because this program was ending on the 31st of March and we squeaked it in. We closed it on the 23rd of March and we got a pretty good uplift in our share price. We raised money at 662 a share in order to do this. And, and we thought, hey, this is a good way to kind of position ourselves in case the commodity, like if, if I thought oil was going to be $100 in the third quarter of this year, I wouldn't, I would have done that. But mm -hmm. because we're not sure what it's going to be, yep. you know, we, we, we do that kind of thing. So, but the one thing that I, I would say for us is that if you have a top 10 list of kind of things that you want to do, 
the first nine should be large transformational acquisitions. I mean, to me, this like this, we did two smaller acquisitions earlier in the year last year, uh, one smaller acquisition in the middle of the year, the year before, but this larger kind of asset that we did, I mean, these are the kind of things that don't come along very often. They're lumpy, they come when they come, and when they come, you kind of got to do them. So you got to figure out a way to do them. You got to be creative enough, whether or not it's the vendor take back and them taking equity or, or whatever you have to do, some other creative way to finance these things. You got to figure out how to do them if they're there and they're compelling. And once you do this acquisition, there's other, like the smaller deals are probably more lucrative. Mm -hmm. I mean, but the smaller deals don't like, there aren't, once you've done all the smaller deals in your own areas that are obvious, that are easy to do, then the other ones get tougher and they're fewer and far between. When you go into a new area that no one's focused in on, you got a bunch more smaller deals to do. Yep. So in, in my view, all of these things feed on each other. And if, if the goal is to get larger and to get barrels under management, the best way to get more barrels under management is to use these transformational acquisitions to, to, to do that stuff. So we're always looking at that. Mm -hmm. So when we set out our goals for the year, we had four goals, reduce the leverage created by this transformational acquisition that we just did, add an inventory in, in repeatable place. Cause you know, as we get bigger, we're gonna need more and more of these plays that are, are more repeatable. So we, we wanna add inventory in repeatable place. This is why we committed to kind of building that Duvernay position in, 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 in our Gilby area, mm -hmm. advance our power business, manage our ARO, and then continue to search for these kind of transformational acquisitions. So that's the kind of thing that you know we're trying to do this year. Awesome. I think it's a I think it's a solid game plan. And um, it now I think now you know you're more excited. Life is probably compared to 2020. Life is probably a little bit more boring in a good way. Um, not the constant threat of you know not knowing if you're going to go under. But uh, what, are you, what are you worried most about now? Is it just the volatility of the underlying? Is it, you know, I, I assume everything at, you know, everything at the company, you know, the employees are happy. Everybody's energized, like you said. So might not be any employee, you know, turnover issues. Like what has you worried most? I, I can't honestly say that I'm overly worried mm -hmm. about anything. What I can say is that um and it's just it, it may just be me it just may be my personality there are probably two or three other guys here that are the same as me but um and i maybe it's a bit of deal junkieism i don't know what you'd call it but we're we're always looking at the next thing like what is the next thing so when I when I lie awake at night and I'm not worried about any of the things that I was worried about in 2020, I'm certainly not worried about our survival. I'm I am worried about commodity prices and all that stuff. But again, you know, we're building the company to kind of handle it, and we're not yep. that worried about it. And our assets don't go anywhere, right? I mean, we have really low declines, like top decile declines. So if if we have six months of bad pricing, we can easily get through it. We yep. can't we can't easily get through it if Imco says I want all my money today and yep. we don't have it today. So to me, it's not the absolute magnitude of debt, it's when that debt needs to be paid. 
right. becomes the problem right. and managing right. around those specific payments. So I'm not worried about any of that. I'm just preoccupied with what's next. Yeah. And and I, I wouldn't say that's a bad worry. That's a fun worry, but that just that that just consumes us because at any one time we're working on five different things. You know, we're yeah. working on smaller deals to kind of manage our ARO. Hey, you you take this kind of high ARO asset and you you get it cheap. You know, we like to buy this asset that's primarily undeveloped land. We like to swap this for that. Our power business, you know, we we want to do this. We want to see if we can leave this one power plant that we're trying to leave where it is and 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 start it up. Because we bought a power plant last November, uh, and uh, we're closing on it this month, and we're going to own it. But it's sitting there; it's all connected; it's ready to go. We just want to turn it on, yeah. and just getting it turned on in that spot is been a very difficult thing. It may still take us another three or four months. I'm starting to be more comfortable that we can get it turned on in that spot, but there's still some risk. Yeah. And, and so we're trying to work through all the hurdles that that go with the regulatory process on our grid to turn it on in that spot. Yep. So these are the like it's just and then and then which of these acquisitions makes sense for us? Is it is it a bigger one? Is it a smaller one? We had one earlier in the year. We couldn't really finance it. We still had the higher debt. We hadn't done a flow through issue yet, and we're sitting there going, Ah, do we need it? Do we not need it? We let it go. Is it coming back? And I just I'm constantly playing over a million different scenarios in my head and I love it because that's, that's, it just, it, it keeps me going yep. and it's what I love doing, but it, that's what, like, I mean, it just seems like that the worry has been replaced by this and it's a, it's a great substitute. I'm not, don't get me wrong. It's a substitute that I love and I'll take every imagine. minute of the day, but, <laughs> but it, it, you know, your mind doesn't stop going when all of a sudden, you know, you survive and you do that, your mind is now on, oh, what do I do next? And how, how can we make journey, you know, 2.0 into journey 3.0? How can we yeah. make it even better than where it already is? Yeah. And, you know, like you said, those rabbit holes that you do, even if you, you know, because I, I, I am the same way. There's time, you know, I can't turn my mind off a lot of times. And most of the time, it's a, it's a, it's a good, I can't turn it off. Like I'm excited about ideas, new investments. And those are great things. But then there's also the times like in 2020 where you can't turn it off because you're like, you know, my kids aren't going to have anything. I hope my wife's business doesn't fail because mine's failing. Like, I, you know, I feel like a failure. Like, those are terrible holes to go down at night. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I applaud the substitution and you know, I, I can, I can, I can see it. I mean, you know, you're smiling like you love, you love doing this. You love, you love deal making. So, this one is one of the things that just, I, I just have to laugh because I did go back to Audrey in 2021. <laughs> You said, I, I, said, I said, you remember all that stuff I said in 2020? I said, I got this now. Yeah, it's good. There you We're go. Good now. There you go. That's fantastic. And, you know, Alex, I feel like we could have a, you know, three and a half hour discussion, but I want to, I want to be cognizant of your time. And so um, I'm going to wrap up with a couple of closing questions that I ask everybody. Okay. Um, the, fir the first one is where can people go to find out more about you? Obviously, Journey's a public company. I own shares. You know, this none of this is investment advice, but you know, you've got you've got a website on Journey, and then you've also got a Twitter account that people can reach you at. Yeah, they can reach me on my Twitter account. Um, they could email the company if they if they send me a message on Twitter, I can easily you know give them my direct number and 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 we can have a conversation. Like I'm. 
I'm more than happy to talk to anybody, any potential investors about about journey, about the business, about anything. I mean, I I, I love it. I love talking about it. So mm-hmm. so 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 that's that's pretty easy, and I'm I'm easy to get a hold of. And I would like to try and do more of the kind of things that that you're doing, because I got to be honest. I think journey has benefited tremendously from the work that pioneers like you and pioneers like Soheb have 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 done. Yep. And and I've been a direct beneficiary of that. I know it. We yep. we used to trade about ten thousand shares a day at under a dollar. In twenty twenty, would have been under a quarter, um, but still only about ten thousand shares a day. And and now we trade over five hundred thousand shares a day at six dollars. And we the, the earlier this week we traded one point two million shares in one day at close to six dollars a share. I mean. That kind of liquidity, and and we're trading a lot of shares in the states now, and 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 that reach has has happened largely because of these kind of platforms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm I'm just I'm just trying to talk to interesting people that have interesting stories, and so wherever wherever that goes, I mean, that's that's fantastic. Um, the last question I have for you, and I ask everybody this: if you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, who would it be, and why? Yeah, I mean it's a it's a tough question. I mean your your first response is always somebody like a Bill Gates or somebody yep. like a Warren Buffett or you know even Elon Musk, some of these creative thinkers that are so visionary. I mean, I think yep. that's kind of your first response. But for me, I mean, I think I would like to I mean, I don't know. I I'd, I'd like to have dinner with some of these people that are influencers on the climate side. You know, like I, I, you can use Greta Thunberg or any of these other ones, or you can use Al Gore or any of these guys. I like to, I like to have that. Like, I'm not sure whether or not it would be the most frustrating dinner ever in my life, but <laughs> it, I think it would be fun to kind of know where they're getting their information and compare their information to my information. I, I mean, if they were open-minded, it would be perfect, but I think that's way too much to hope for. But I, I would just, I, I hear some of these things that people say and it drives me insane. And I just, I'd love to sit down with them and, 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 and figure out whether or not they've thought through all of the nuances of what they're, they're trying to do or whether or not they've just been told a lot of things by a lot of parties and, and, and they've, they've kind of picked up on a few of them and they believe in them, but, 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 you know, the, this, the stats are not, it's not true. And, yeah. and, and whether or not I'd, I'd love to get some other perspectives from, from, I mean, I like to, I like to have a little bit of a challenging discussion with some of these people about energy and what it is yeah. and why I think we need it and, and, and see how they respond. I think it'd be cool to have, and I just kind of thought of this, but I think it'd be cool to have like a Santa Fe Institute for energy for 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 fossil fuels like that would be very very fascinating um where you have this place where everybody knows like hey like you know the ticket to joining this place is you have to be open-minded you have to be willing to disagree and have you know be willing to have your hypotheses debunked um but it would it would it would be fascinating because you know like like the santa fe institute has done with the theory of complexity i think you could do a lot with the theory of fossil fuels and its like need and impact and it's you know and and the demand as we move into a green tech future, um, that would be that would be very fascinating. So, um, just we know. have too much polarization on this issue. Yes, we have the people on one side that are polarized. 
we have the the people on the other side that are like even that Bjorn Lomberg, he's fairly polarizing on the other side. And and then we have the kind of people that are sort of in the middle, like a Bill Gates, who is sort of talking about all of the things that we need. And you got the hands rollings from faculness and and then the Steven Pinkers and all these guys that are saying, you know, here's when energy's done, here's why energy is a really great thing, you know, but recognizing the fact that you know the world does need a balance between yep. what we're doing to the environment and 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 you know the needs of energy and i i'm obviously being in the energy space not a fan of what some of the stuff is going on in like north america and yeah. how we're treating our own industry and then looking at what's happening in the world yep and and trying to juxtaposition those two things and, and you know i mean i don't i don't think we should be the moral compass for the rest of the world i think we should supply the cleanest possible energy using the best possible practices that we can do and i think we should use that to displace energy in areas where people are burning wood or dung, like or yeah, or, or, or dung. Matter. <laughs> there's a there's a billion people in this world that are using biomass for like heating and cooking, and you're yeah. like, you know, let's get rid of that and and let's elevate the standard of everybody to a certain level. Energy is an important factor in that. I'm obviously pro nuke. I'm. I would love to just continue this debate in from the middle. Yeah, I think we should all be kind of, we need to do both and the planet is not going to absolutely burn up, you know, tomorrow if it takes a little bit longer. The problem that we have is these knee-jerk reactions that we make are going to actually lengthen the energy transition rather yep. than shorten it. Yep. Yeah, I think that's very, that's, that's very well said. So. Alex, thanks so much for doing this. I really do appreciate it. You know, you run you run a company, and your time is valuable. And you chose to spend a, spend spend some of that with me. And uh, I loved it. Thank you. All my questions. Yeah, I loved it too. Thank you so much, and best of luck the rest of the year. All right, take care, Brandon. Thanks so much for doing what you do. This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive.